We, uh, we put Amanda and John in the excavation tent this morning, and uh, they've been able to make it. So thank you, Praise Band, for all that they do, and they practice every week very diligently, and thank you for leading us in worship. Uh, we're in Jeremiah 29 this morning, and you know, tonight our young people will be uh, in VBS and Destination Dig, and they're going to be, uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, and you will... Seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And so our kids tonight will be uncovering the truth of God's word as they search for Jesus. And they will be digging into those artifacts of the past so that they can understand the present. Sometimes, you know, we need to look to the past so we can understand our present. You know, I read an article this week about a woman named Edith Pretty. And that was her last name. I don't know if she was, but that was her last name, Edith Pretty. And she was a wealthy widow who lived in Suffolk, England. And she lived on a 245-acre estate called Sutton Hoo. And on that estate, there were 12 mysterious mounds in her, on her estate. And so Edith Pretty was a very sophisticated woman. She was a very intelligent woman. She was a refined woman, and she understood the importance of archaeology. And for, in fact, her father was an archaeologist, and she had traveled with him to Egypt. And uh, she was there when he excavated a site there in Egypt. So she understood the value of archaeology. And so Edith Pretty was kind of curious and wondered, would there be anything buried underneath those mounds on her estate? So in 1937, Edith Pretty hired a self-taught excavator named Basil Brown. And so uh, Basil Brown was to excavate those 18 mounds on her 245-acre estate. And so Basil Brown began his work. He excavated the first two mounds, and it was very disappointing. There was nothing really to speak of. But in 1939, Basil Brown unearthed a 7th century burial ship as one of the greatest finds of that time, really, in history, other than uh, one, other, one or two other events in recent years. Uh, years, but it was the find of a lifetime. And at some point in the seventh century, about 1400 years ago, somebody took a, a dignitary, whoever he was, and they put him in a boat and they rolled that boat to Suffolk, England, and then they buried that boat with him in it in Sutton Hoo Estate. And so Basil Brown believed that that burial boat belonged to an Anglo Saxon king named Raidhold. Now, Basil knew or believed that there was uh, evidence for a body in that particular boat. But when he looked for it and he excavated it, he couldn't find the body, even though there was evidence that one had been there. But what Basil Brown found in this burial boat was even greater than that. It was even a greater treasure. He found an Anglo-Saxon, really a, a host of artifacts. He found gold coins, and he found a gold belt buckle, and he found an Anglo-Saxon helmet and, and silver utensils and all this treasure that he unearthed in that boat. And these were very uh, precious, invaluable artifacts. It was really the treasure hunter's dream, if you will. And Edith Pretty was the sole owner of all this invaluable treasure. Now, do you know what Edith Pretty did with all that treasure? She didn't bury it. It was already buried. She dug it up. She didn't bank it. She decided that the world needed to benefit from all these marvelous artifacts. And so she willfully donated every last artifact to the British Museum so that the world could benefit from it. You know, we have a greater treasure than the Sutton Hoo treasure today. 2,000 years ago, the disciples went to a stone burial site. And they walked into that particular room expecting to find the body of Jesus. But when they got there, there was nobody there. 
It was empty. Now there was evidence that someone had been buried there, but there was no body there. So they began to search for Jesus. And as they began to search for Jesus, they discovered something that's really transformed the landscape of the entire world. This was something that they discovered that transformed and radically changed their lives forever. They found an empty tomb, and as they began to search for Jesus, they realized that He had resurrection. He had resurrected. Now, we have a treasure today that will transform your life if you will only search for Him and find Him. We have the invaluable, imperishable, inexhaustible treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ who's risen. And so this morning, I want to give you some ways in which you can seek Christ and find Him. Ways that you can seek God and find Him. So if you've got your Bibles open or turned on to Jeremiah chapter 29, I want to begin reading with verse 10. And in verse 10 it says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Now these verses are from a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the captives who were taken away in Babylon. When he wrote this letter, they were held captive. And he wrote this letter to give them some encouragement. They were taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But before all that took place, God had given Jeremiah a message of warning for the people of Israel, for the children of Israel. He had given them a warning of coming judgment if they did not change their ways. So God delivered that message through Jeremiah. But Jeremiah was preaching to a bunch of stiff-necked people. They would not receive that message. In fact, they rejected that message um, from Jeremiah. Not only did they reject the message, they rejected Jeremiah. They mistreated him. I won't go into all the ways they mistreated him. At one point, they just decided they wanted to kill him. He was not worth living. And they wanted to kill the messenger. I like what Jeremiah said about this. He said, listen, if you get some bad mail in your mailbox, don't kill the delivery boy. I'm just delivering the message. Don't go after the messenger. That's exactly what they did. And so God sent Jeremiah to turn people's hearts back to him. But they weren't listening. So God sent Nebuchadnezzar and all those Babylonians to Jerusalem. And they took all those Jews, those children of Israel, took them back captive to Babylon. And so what we have right now in Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah's letter to them while they are in captivity. And he's reminding them of some things. Now this letter was to the children of Israel, but I do believe that these verses still apply to us today when we seek Him. For example, in Hebrews 11.6, it says that He, Jesus, is a rewarder of those who seek, diligently seek Him. Jesus is the rewarder of those who seek Him. And I want to give you four ways that you can seek Jesus and find Him. Number one, we need to seek God in His will. We need to seek God in His will. Maybe you're in a dark place uh, today in your life. And maybe you you just feel like throwing in a towel. Maybe you feel like you're, you're in a dark 
uh, place in, in, in life and maybe God's just, maybe you feel like he's forgotten you where you are. Maybe it's your workplace and maybe your workplace is a dark place. Maybe your workplace is like a spiritual desert and you just feel like you just need to get out. And maybe you think that God has forgotten you. He's left you in this bad place. But you might be right where God wants you to be in his will. You know, I remember when I was about four years old. It's not been that long ago. I was about four years old, and my family went to Disney World. Now, we only went to Disney World twice when I was growing up, the first time and the last time. And so we went to Disney World, and my parents took their three precious, wonderful, well-behaved little boys, one nine, one six, one four. And I remember they wanted to go into some shop, and they realized, hey, we don't want to take these rambunctious boys into this uh, establishment because we don't know what might happen. So they decided to sit us on a bench outside and told us to wait until they got finished and they would be back out. Can you imagine what it's like for a nine, six, and four-year-old to sit on a bench at Disney World and just wait? I mean, it may have only been ten minutes. Maybe it's five minutes, maybe two minutes, but a second at Disney World is like a thousand years. And so my two older brothers said, well, we're going to go look for our parents. You sit here until we get back. Uh, what do you think a four-year-old is going to do? So they were gone. And I thought, well, you know, they just abandoned me. They just left me here. My whole family strategically left me here. So I began to go look and find out where they might have disappeared to. And in the meantime, somebody saw a four-year-old walking around Disney World. And they decided I need to go, go to Lost and Found. And that's exactly where they took me, to Lost and Found. And I remember these, these people dressed up like, like Pluto and Dumbo. They came to comfort me. They were no comfort. They looked evil to me. But here I am thinking that I've been abandoned, that I've been forgotten. I didn't know that my family was looking for me at that time. I just knew I didn't know where they were. And maybe you're in a place right now where you feel like God has left you in Babylon and you feel abandoned. And maybe you feel like you've, you've been forsaken. But maybe God has you right where he wants you. And the children of Israel were in a very dark place in their lives. And they were captives in Babylon. And so Jeremiah said to them in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. You can flip back. But Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. God says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive. Now listen to this. Whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And then he says, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Now what? That's not what they were expecting. They were expecting God to do an immediate extrication. They wanted God to immediately rescue them from Babylon. And God said, no, I have you exactly where I want you. I have put you there. And this will not be a short stay. You might as well go ahead and hunker down and be ready because you're going to be there a while. There were some false prophets in that day who told the children of Israel, they said, listen, you don't need to unpack. You won't be here very long. You're just on a little vacation. But Jeremiah says, no, you're going to be there 70 years. You, better, you might as well plant some roots. You don't build a house when you're on vacation, do you? Now you're in a room. But God told them to build houses to plant gardens, to get married and have children because they were going to be in this desert for a while. 
One of the most important phrases in verse 4 and verse 7 is this. God calls them to be carried away captive. They were right in God's will. Do you know one of the people who were carried away captive was a young man by the name of Daniel? Daniel was about 16 or 17 years old when he was taken captive by the Babylonians and carried away from his home. He didn't get to plan his life. He didn't get to go to college and choose what career he was going to have. He was kind of a victim of circumstance in some ways. But God planned for him to be in Babylon to shine like a light in the darkness. You know, some people want to live like the Babylonians when they're in Babylon. Some people have a when in Rome attitude, live like the Romans. Well, we're to live in Babylon, but we're not to live like Babylon. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's why Daniel was thrown into a lion's den later in his life because he refused to live like the Babylonians. We are to be in this world, but not of this world. God puts you where you are. Other people want to retreat from the world. They just say, I just want to get away from this world so I can be free from all this stuff. I just want to live in my holy huddle and never engage the world. But God has put you in this world to shine like a light in the darkness. And that's exactly what Daniel did when he was in Babylon. He let his light so shine before men that they would glorify his Father in heaven. You know, Daniel was falsely accused and thrown into a lion's den by King Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel taught King Nebuchadnezzar some valuable truths about himself, about God. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 26, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said about Daniel after he got him out of that lion's den. He said, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion dominion shall endure till the end. See, Daniel was a light to Nebuchadnezzar. How else would King Nebuchadnezzar have ever learned that there's only one true living God? It was because of the light of Daniel in Babylon. And so maybe God has you in Babylon so that you can let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so you need to seek God's will and seek Him in His will. You need to seek God and find Him in His will. And God puts you where you can have an impact. And if you're living in Dillon, God wants you to let your light so shine in Dillon that people will see Christ. In your workplace, God has put you where you are so that they will see Christ. God has put you there. Now you can also seek God in His worship. You can seek God in His will, but you can seek God in His worship. Look at verse 12. He says, then you will call upon me, go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. How often do you pray? How often do you seek God in prayer? Some of you may not know this, but every Sunday morning at 8.30, a group of us meet for prayer in our prayer room. And we pray for our connect group leaders. We pray for our worship service. We pray for God's Spirit to move among us because what we do here is a spiritual work and we're dependent on Him. And each of you are invited to be a part of that. If you're a deacon, we invite you. If you're a connect group leader, we invite you. If you're just a church member, we invite you to come pray with us 
at 8.30 in our prayer room. It's located through the double doors on the Washington Street side. You might be participating in the nursery. You don't even know somebody's prayed for you already. How important is prayer to you? How important is worship to you? You know, some people come to church and they don't find Jesus because they're really not looking for Jesus. Some people come to church because they're looking for something to criticize or to complain about. Some people come to church just because they love listening to the music. And by the way, we have awesome music. And I love listening to the music. But you know, that's not why I come. I come to worship. I come to seek His face. You know, so many people's worship is really just kind of half-hearted. We don't prepare during the week, so when we get here on Sunday, it's just a half-hearted worship. You know that the word worship means worthship. How much is Jesus worth? How much is He worth in worship? Is He worth your worship? You know, King David was not perfect by far. But he deeply worshipped God. In Psalm 63, verse 1, he said this, O God, You are my God. Early I will seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and dusty land where there is no water. Have you ever been that thirsty for God? That you thirsted for Him like you were living in a dry, dusty land with no water? You know, I remember the first time I went to Burkina Faso, I didn't know much about that climate. I'd never been there. And when I got there, it was very hot, dry, dusty. And we didn't drink enough because we really weren't used to that climate. And so we got there the first day. None of us were drinking much. I knew I wasn't drinking much. Well, by the end of that day, I was parched. I was dry. I was thirsty. I was dehydrated. You ever been there? You're just so thirsty. You, have you been so thirsty that you're, you have cotton mouth? You know what I mean by that? Your mouth's so dry, you can't, even, you can't even muster saliva. Well, that's what it was like. And we were thirsty for water. Well, David said, that's how I thirst for God and worship. With that same fervency, like I'm living in a dry, dusty desert and I'm thirsting, longing for God. Do you come to worship with that level of desperation to meet God? Or do you just come to get a blessing? You know, you can come to church every single Sunday and leave empty. Did you know that? I remember someone came to church one Sunday and they sat on the very back row. And we were worshiping, and they just sat there with their arms crossed. Never stood up to sing. Never participated in the worship in any level. And at the end of that service, they told me, said, well, you know, I just don't want really to get anything out of the worship. I said, well, what exactly did you put into the worship? You know, you get out of worship exactly what you put into worship. I heard one person say this. They said, you have all of Jesus that you want. And the reason that we don't have any more of Jesus is because we really don't want any more of Jesus. Some of you don't find God in worship because you really don't want to find God. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29, 13, he said, you will find me when you search for me with some of your heart. Is that what it says? No, it says, you will find me when you search for me with half your heart. No, he says, you will find me when you search for me with all Your heart. You must come to worship wholeheartedly. But you must also come to worship in honesty and humility. 
If you want to find Jesus, you must come with honesty and humility. You know, Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 18 about two men who came to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. You remember the story. And so that Pharisee got into the temple there and he got ready to pray. He looked over there and there was that tax collector. He looked up to heaven and he said, Thank God I'm not like this tax collector. Thank God I'm not a sinful man like he is. I mean, I don't smell like him. I don't look like him. I don't dress like him. Thank God I'm not a sinner like he is. Thank God I go to church one time a week. Thank God I sit in the pew on Sunday morning. Thank God I give a tithe. Thank God I'm not a sinner like him. And then there's that tax collector. The Bible says that he was, Jesus said he was so broken over his sin. He was so sin ridden that he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven to pray. And he began to pray and the Bible says he began to beat his chest and he cried out to God, Oh God have mercy on me a sinner. Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, He said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you want to find God in worship, you have to come wholeheartedly, and you have to come honestly, and you have to come humbly in worship. You need to seek God in His will, and you'll find Him. You need to search for God in His worship and you'll find Him. But when you search for God in His Word, you will find Him. When you search for God in His Word, you'll find Him. And I want you to look at Jeremiah 29, 8 for just a moment. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. That means the Lord speaks. God speaks. He said, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. And these were the false prophets who were telling them, don't worry, you're not going to be in Babylon very long. And it was not true. God had not sent them. There were false prophets misleading the people. So Jeremiah was warning them not to listen to these false prophets. You know, we're living in a world of false prophets today. Would you agree with that? There are a lot of people who are proclaiming some things that are just not true according to God's Word because they do not fit our cultural paradigm. And so they want to deny the Word and reject the Word or change the Word. Paul said that that would happen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he said this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul said there was coming a day when people would not endure sound doctrine. They would refuse it. They would reject it. And let me just say this. If you reject the the Word of God, you reject the revelation of God. If you reject the revelation of God, you reject the salvation of God. You say, really? How can you make that connection? Because Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It is essential to your salvation. You know, I read an article this past week about a man from India. He grew up and he got saved at a very young age as a teenager. And he was serving the Lord. But then he went to college. He came to Georgia and he went to college. And when he went there, he began to learn about evolution and Darwinism and all these uh, philosophies. And then he began to lose his faith. And he became a secret atheist for a while. And he began to struggle. And one day he said, I just said, I was miserable. 
because I was living a lie. I didn't really believe that the Bible was true. I didn't really believe in Jesus anymore. I'd, I'd kind of grown out of that through all of my education. He said, but I was so miserable one day, I just said, God, I'm going to read this book and see where the answers are. And as he began to pick up the Bible and just read it objectively and honestly, he said, God showed me all the answers were right there. And they were there all along. I just not spent time reading the Word of God. And so he returned to Christ. Now you can be certain God's Word never changes. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, the Bible says, The grass withers, the flowers fade. Fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I'm so thankful we got such a strong, reliable word. You might say, well, do you really believe the Bible to be true? I mean, do you really believe the Bible is true? Do you really believe that? Yes, I do. I believe it wholeheartedly, or I wouldn't be standing right here. I believe that the Bible was miraculously written and marvelously preserved. It has been scrutinized, tested, critiqued more than any other literary work on the face of the earth. You know, our government spent four years investigating Russian collusion. For four years, every stone was overturned, every act investigated, every conversation evaluated for four years. Well, this Bible has been scrutinized, examined, investigated, interrogated, and critiqued not for just four years, not for 40 years. Not for 400 years, but for 2,000 years, this Bible has been critiqued and it has stood the test of time. Despite all the evaluation, it has stood with compelling authority and authenticity. And so, do I believe the Bible? Yes. I could talk to you this morning about how the Bible was written over a 1,500 uh, span of time. I could talk to you about how it was written by 40 different authors, how it was written on three different continents. I could talk to you about how it was written by shepherds and kings and prophets and farmers and fishermen and even a doctor named Luke. These were people from very diverse backgrounds, but when it came to the most controversial issues, they all were in alignment. We can't even get our medical uh, uh, experts from the government to agree on COVID vaccines, and yet all 40 of these biblical writers were consistent in their message on the most controversial issues of life. That is miraculous. You know, I was thinking about the fulfilled prophecy in Scripture. You know, the number of fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament is really staggering. I, I don't have time to unpack all those now, but I'll just say this. 750 years before Jesus was ever born, it was prophesied about His birth. 750 years before Jesus was ever crucified, it was prophesied about His crucifixion. And every prophecy about Jesus was fulfilled in Him. We have fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is true. I could talk to you about the Bible's integrity and authenticity and how they've been demonstrated through archaeological evidence. We're talking about that this week. Now, the Bible's not proven by archaeology, but it does verify the facts that it, it attests to. Some people say, well, you know, the Bible really can't be trusted because it mentions a man by the name of Pontius Pilate who had Jesus crucified, but we have no historical record other than the Bible that he ever even existed. Well, that was until 1961. They were digging and excavating around a, 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 a city by the sea, Caesarea, which was King's, the, uh, King Herod's city by the sea. And as they began to excavate that area, they unearthed a stone that had been buried since, really, 26 to 39 A.D. And on that stone was an inscription to Pontius Pilate. See, the Bible is factual. 
Last week we talked about a man who was laying beside the pool of Bethesda. And some critics would say, well, you know, that, that wasn't even a real place. We have no evidence that there was ever a pool near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem with five porches or five colonnades. We have no evidence for that. But then they begin to excavate in that area. And as they begin to excavate, they found a pool with five porches just like John recorded. And we stood there just a, few, just a year ago or a few years ago. We were there. The Bible includes events, places that can be verified. It's a verifiable book. Some critics will claim, well, you know, it's impossible for you to trust the Bible. I mean, it was written so long ago, and, and so how can you know that what you read is really accurate? You ever had anybody make that accusation? Well, one day in 1946, in Israel, there was a little shepherd boy. He'd lost his goat. He was looking for his goat and he found a cave there in Israel and he threw a stone into that cave looking for his lost goat. But when it, when it hit, he heard something break. He thought, well, that's interesting. So he got curious and he went to go investigate what broke when he threw the rock and he found these jars of clay. And inside those jars were fragments of the Old Testament. He had no idea what the value of those things were. So he took a fragment and he went to a pawn shop and he found that they'd give him a few bucks for this invaluable resource. And so he took that little bit of money and that pawn shop guy, he knew exactly what was going on. And he sold it to some, to some archaeologists or historians. But a few days later, that shepherd boy brought some more back. And so this uh, pawn shop gave him a few, uh, owner gave him some more bucks, and he wasn't, the, the shepherd wasn't making a lot of money, but he knew this was invaluable. After a while, they began to realize there's something going on. So they began to investigate, and they realized that this little boy had found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community in Israel. Now, the Qumran community was a very desert location, and the people who lived there were Essenes. They were scribes, and what they would do is they would copy the Bible. And so these scrolls had been hidden away, hidden, for 2,000 years, some of those things date back to 150 B.C. And God let them stay hidden until he was ready to reveal them in 1946 to a shepherd boy. Now you say, well, why are those manuscripts so important? Because it has verified that the same Old Testament that you and I read is the same Old Testament that they read. And that gives us confidence in what we read. The Bible is a supernatural book and has been supernaturally preserved. But out of all the evidence for the Bible, the greatest evidence in my mind is because it accurately describes the human dilemma. You see, the Buddhists would say the problem of man is ignorance. We just need to educate man. He'll get out of his sin. Germany was one of the most educated nations in the world. The result of their superior education was the systemic extermination of six million Jews. Education is not man's problem. The utopianists would say, well, the environment is our problem. If we could just get in a better environment, we wouldn't sin. And so this has been attempted many times to, to create the perfect environment. But the moment that you and I step into it is no longer perfect. And so they never succeed. The Bible doesn't claim that our problem is the lack of education. It doesn't claim that our problem is the environment. The Bible says that we are sinners by birth. We are natural born sinners. You know, the Bible says that there's none righteous. No, not one. None righteous. And I've heard someone say, if the greatest need had been education, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If, uh, but, uh, if our greatest need had been science, He would have sent a scientist. But God knew our greatest need was forgiveness, and He sent a Savior. The Bible points to one Hebrew, and His name is Jesus. There is no name under heaven by which men must be saved. 
But let me just say this. When you come to God's Word, if you come with the wrong motive, you will not find Jesus in the Word. If, if you're just looking for some reasons to criticize it, if you're just looking for ammunition that you can use against somebody in a debate, if you're just loading yourself up to prove a point, you're going to miss Jesus. You know, some people read the Bible with no desire to really know Him. And so that's why they don't see Him in the Word. They've already made up their minds about the Bible. And so they're not really looking for truth. Adrian Rogers told the story one time of a man who was attacked by two muggers in a park one night, a dark park. They began to wrestle with that man. They were fighting with him. He was fighting back with all he had. They were just trying to rob him, and he was fighting back with everything he had. And so they were beating him and wrestling him, and finally they subdued him, and they reached in his pocket and pulled all his money out. He had one dime, 10 cent. And that mugger said, you know, why in the world are you fighting so hard over 10 cent? He said, we could have killed you. And that man said, well, to tell you the truth, I didn't want my financial condition exposed. (laughs) You know? I think sometimes we wrestle with Scripture for the very same reason. We don't want our heart exposed. And so we wrestle with the Bible. We fight against God's Word because we really don't want to know the truth. Jesus said to some Pharisees one day in John chapter 5, verse 39, He says, you search the Scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. In other words, the scriptures testify of me. But Jesus said, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jay Sekulow is a Jewish attorney and the chief counsel of the American Center of Law and Justice. He grew up in Judaism as a Jew. Very nominal. Wasn't very spiritual, really. He said, but he, he went to a Baptist college when he was uh, uh, going to college and, and he really wanted to show the Bible thumpers how in, in unreliable the, the Bible was and their misunderstandings of it. And while he was there, he met a friend. And this friend said to him one day, he said, well, can you explain to me exactly who Isaiah 53 is talking about? Exactly who is it, uh, Isaiah referring to it? Isaiah 53. So Jay Sekulow said, well, I'll prove to you it's not Jesus. So he began to study Isaiah 53, and as he began to open that, that particular chapter up, he began to realize this is speaking about the Messiah. And then he began to realize that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He tried every way around it he could, but he couldn't find a way around it. The more he tried, the more he realized that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So what did he do? He said, I never really thought about the need for forgiveness. I really never thought about the need for salvation. He said, but when I realized how much the Messiah suffered for me, I realized I needed forgiveness. So I bowed my heart before God and I gave him my life and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jay Sekulow today defends Christians' rights and freedoms? He has argued before the United States Supreme Court 12 times in defense of Christians' rights. How did that happen? He found Jesus by searching the Word. I want to give you one last place to find, find Jesus. You need to search for God in His will, search for God in His worship, search for God in His Word, but you need to also search for God in His works, and you'll find Jesus. And Jeremiah 29, 14 says this, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. And you begin to seek God in His works as He begins to bring people back. You see God's work of drawing people to Himself. Now I could tell you this morning about the work of His creation. 
And if I told you about the work of His creation, you would see God. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day into day utter speech, night into night reveals knowledge. And listen to this. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Every day, 24 hours a day, in every place, every continent, every nation, every city, every community, in every town, in every people group, the universe preaches a clear message about the Creator. You could see God in His creation. You can also, I could talk to you this morning about His work of curing. I could tell you about all the wonderful miracles He, he performed. I could tell you about how one day there's a little girl uh, who, who was asleep in death and Jesus rose her from the grave. I could tell you about the man who was begging for Jesus to heal him of leprosy and Jesus healed that man of an incurable disease called leprosy. I could tell you about the day that he found a blind man who was born blind and he gave his sight back. I could tell you about the day that some friends brought their friend to Jesus and they lowered him through the roof because they wanted Jesus to heal him. And Jesus not only gave him his legs back, but he forgave him of his sin. I could tell you about the curing power of Jesus and his work. But I want to give you the greatest work that Christ ever did. And it was the work on the cross. It's the work of the cross. He finished His work on the cross and it's the reason that we're forgiven and have hope this morning. I read the story about the Transcontinental Railroad being built in 1863 through 1869, well before our time. Well, the Transcontinental Railroad was going to connect the East to the West and they were excited about it. So all the funds had been raised, the plans had been made and they began to recruit all the workers and they put them in place and they started in Iowa in the East and they started building that railroad toward the West and then the West started building their railroad back toward the East until they met. And when they got ready to meet, they wanted to celebrate the commemoration of this big event. And so they called all these government officials together. They got all the railroad workers who had been a part to be there. And it was going to be at a, at a huge event. And they took a silver hammer. And then they had a gold railroad spike. And they, it was called the last spike. And so the goal was that they were going to drive that nail in as the last spike to complete the railroad. Well... On this particular day, May 10th, 1869, they took that silver hammer and that gold spike and they drove that spike into that railroad, railway as the last spike to say, it is finished. It is complete. The job is done. The east and west are now connected. Well, 2,000 years ago, there were some spikes used to connect sinful man to holy God. And those spikes weren't gold. They were spikes used by the Romans to crucify people. And those spikes were driven into the precious spotless Lamb of God as He laid on Calvary's cross to bear my sin and your sin. And when those spikes were driven into His tender flesh, the treasure that day was not a golden spike. It was the precious blood that flowed from Emmanuel's veins from my sin and your sin. And when Jesus took those nails in His hands and feet, He declared this, it is finished. I have now connected sinful man to holy God. The work of the cross. And Jesus said in 12, chapter, uh, John chapter 12, verse 32, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That is the work of God. Would you seek Him in His works? If you will seek Jesus in His work, you will find Him. 
And I just want to say, some of you this morning, you found the treasure of Jesus, but you haven't been sharing Jesus. You've been banking him, you've been burying him, but you've not been sharing him. And maybe you're in a dark place and you don't like where you are, but maybe that's where God wants you. And maybe today you just need to come before God and say, God, I want you to help me shine as a light in the darkness. Would you be willing to do that? And say, God, I want you to help me shine. Or maybe you're here this morning and you realize, you know what? When I come to worship, I just come, I have a half-hearted worship. And maybe you need to come this morning and say, I, I, want, I want to know Him more. I want to hunger and thirst for Him. God, would you just show me your glory? Or maybe you're here this morning and life's gotten so busy for you, so hectic, that you've neglected the Word of God. And you haven't even been taking time to read it. And you don't think anybody knows it, but I can assure you, people do. Because it's evident when you've not been in the Word. And maybe you need to come this morning and say, God, I want to make my quiet time with you a priority in my life. I want to seek you and know you. Or maybe this morning you're searching for God and you realize you don't have a relationship. Maybe you're like Jay Sekulow. You, you, don't really, you didn't really even think about you needed forgiveness. But when you think about how much he suffered for you to pay for your sin debt, you realize I need to be, I need to be forgiven. And so maybe this morning you just need to come and say, I need to be forgiven. I want to cry out to God, uh, forgive my sins. I know you're the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And maybe this morning you need to make that commitment. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I want to ask you to respond how the Lord leads you. Now, you can make those decisions right where you are. Many times you might, but I'll tell you, you need to put feet to your decisions if you really want to see a change. I don't encourage you to respond. And maybe you say, well, I can't go kneel at the altar. I just can't get down and up. You don't have to do that. You can just come stand at the altar. Say, God, I want to, I want to talk to you today. You say, well, you know, I'll just do that later. God's Word always says today. God's Word is always today, not later. Satan's word is always tomorrow. You can do that tomorrow. You can do it, just not today. But Jesus says today. Today. You know, there may never be another day for you. Today is the day. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I want to thank you so much for the beauty of your word. I want to thank you so much for the beauty of the rugged cross. Because it is the very instrument that you use to purchase our freedom from sin. I want to thank you for the privilege that we have to come and worship this morning. That we get to worship freely. You, the Holy God. And enter boldly into your presence. I want to thank you that we can see your works in our lives. The works of creation, your works of healing, your your work of forgiveness on the cross. And Lord, right now, I don't know what's happening in people's hearts. I, I don't have that privilege as between you and, and people. But I just pray you give people the boldness to respond to you however you lead them. And Lord, your word is powerful. I may be a weak vessel, but your word is not. So I'm so thankful for your word. I just pray as we come to these moments that you would move in our hearts and lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you to stand with us. And as you stand, if God's speaking with you, don't delay. Make sure you respond to Him immediately. Let's stand together as we sing. To every question.